Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here with some wonderful bonus content. Uh, we're doing a postscript episode. We've only done a few of these so far, but this is when I drag willingly, uh, usually, a friend or, you know, I guess, associate of the pod on to discuss an author or a work that we've recently covered. And today we're going to be talking more about Jane Austen. How could we not? She's a as I kind of covered in the episode, a titan of the Western canon, someone you either begrudgingly read in high school or somehow avoided, which if you did, I'm not sure how. Maybe you skipped out on AP Lit or something. Uh, but today I brought in a friend of mine uh, who lives in Charlotte, and I've known her for, I don't know how long now, four or five years, a long time it feels like. And she is a bit of an Austinite. Is that what you'd call yourself, Amanda? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I saw that term online and I didn't love it. I think... Any author with "ite" at the end is like a tacky. I don't. I don't know. It felt corny, <laughs> but I respect it. It's okay to be a fan of things. I don't want to take fandom away. I just thought the term was like I don't know, a little corny. But anyway, it's okay to love Jane Austen. Proud Austenites unite. Uh, Amanda is a well. Currently, she was a tutor with me for a while, um, but she has a, a master's degree in. Is it officially English literature? Or was it comparative or something? It's just called English. <laughs> Oh, okay. Just the language, the whole thing. The, <laughs> the <history>. whole thing. <laughs> yeah. She's a linguist and a historian. And yeah, I know. That's <laughs> impressive. Okay. A master's in English. Uh, and I had mistakenly, we actually just talked about this before we started, but I mistakenly thought her master's degree or her thesis wasn't Jane Austen, but that was a different program. Could you tell the people about that program then? What's your Austen background? Uh, so I was actually part of the Wentworth Fellowship, which was... Um, uh, an almost scholarship program where you got to, you had to submit a thesis and you had to defend your thesis after um, the summer and they would send you to uh, a country uh, in order to mm -hmm. study that particular thing. So I did mine on Jane Austen. Uh, in particular, my thesis was about um, why is it that in her literature, in her novels, uh, she often villainizes people and cities right? The people from cities. Mm -hmm. and, okay. But then she romanticizes the countryside and stuff like that. Is it just because of the romantic era type writing? Or was it something that she personally um, felt? So that's why yeah. I was able to go to um, London. <clears throat> I actually stayed in Tunbridge, which is about like 45 minutes from London. Oh, okay. And uh, funny enough, I didn't do the research beforehand, but that's where her dad and her paternal grandmother were from. Oh, okay. So, uh, hey, yeah. England's a relatively small country, but it, nonetheless, impressive coincidence. <laughs> yeah, so I got to um, also see that part of her life as well. And I got to go to um, Canterbury. I know that you did a podcast on Chaucer's. Right. Um, Canterbury Tales. So I got to go to Canterbury at one point too. But Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Canterbury Tales surprised me and it was one I covered this in the episode, but I that one I missed in high school somehow. Just never encountered it. It seems like in Charlotte, uh, working with the students I do here, like that seems incredibly common here. Like almost every high schooler reads it uh, in Charlotte. But no, growing up I completely missed that one. And I really did enjoy it. It was far more clever for something as old as it was. It was far more clever than I thought it would be. It's, it's a great, not, uh, I don't know, I guess like series, because uh, it's a mm -hmm. bunch of different little snippets of, of poetry. But yeah, I loved it as well. 
Yeah, that Canterbury Tales is excellent. So before you went to England then and did your thesis, what was your exposure to Austin and and what were your impressions of her? I, for my part, and I mentioned this on the pod, um, since I first read her in an AP class, I think it was literature. I don't know why a Lang teacher would do that. but So I think it was AP Lit. But um, so I will always associate her with that transit transition from thinking like, oh, stories are, you know, somewhat deep and fun to like, oh, literature has that such, you know, profound meaning. And there are all these theories you can apply and it becomes very dense and very complex and there's a million things. And so that that sort of changing my framework or my thinking around literature, I will always associate that with her. I think for the better in terms of how I think of her, I just think of her as a, a complex writer with uh, a lot of social insight and so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my impression of her, I think, will always be positive, uh, despite her politics or whatever else. Um, what was your first exposure? Uh, so with Jane Austen, <laughs> as uh, you know, my mom is Korean. Yeah. So uh, she had uh, very uh, strict ideas about uh, what I could read as a child. So oh, okay. um, I was only really allowed to read um the classics that she called the classics um from from the age of like um sixth grade up fascinating yeah so in sixth grade is when i i read my first jane austen which was i believe pride and prejudice because that's the one that my mom had read before okay so she got me that one to read. And then um, from there, actually, I enjoyed it so much that I started reading her other novels. And um, it was what I really liked about Jane Austen. And I continue to enjoy about Jane Austen, despite our friends making fun of me sometimes about it. Um, That's okay. It's okay to be a fan of something. (laughs) Never apologize for your fandom, you know? It's okay. Uh, Jane Austen, the way that she wrote... um, it's such a, it, she does bring a sense of humor and, and light to a bunch of characters, but it's very insightful into, I think, humanity in general. So I really like her characterizations. It's her character development, and not just of the main character in her novel, but all the characters somehow, you know, they they shine a light into uh, the absurdities of, of mm-hmm. what it is to be a human, right? Our flaws, and and yeah. I just absolutely love that, and and that's what I look for whenever I read now. Um, yeah, any piece of literature is I look at the character development in particular, even sometimes more so than the plot, uh, just because that's what I, I value, I suppose, and that's also why I I uh, took some psychology classes and stuff like that, just because of how she developed um, the characters. Yeah, I think too, when you, well, there's like a hundred things to unpack in what you just said. Let's start with the last thing, which I think is a great insight. It's it's remarkable. And I felt this way about Chaucer, maybe especially just because of how much older it was. But I mean, psychology is a new d- domain. It's like a new discipline in terms of the hi- human history, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and sociology and all those things too. It's not like there's been formal academic work in those fields for more than like 150 or maybe 200 years, uh, you know, depending on how you date things. Right. And so- yeah, if you can get such universal insight from uh, a time period that was pretty much predates all of that work and things that you know are common knowledge, like there's so many psych terms, especially I think the Economist just did a podcast about this, but there's so many psych terms in our daily vocabulary now. These this knowledge is infiltrated into such a common uh, level in society, and it's just you know 
I think the further back you go into literature and the more you can see those things, yeah, it does feel almost more impressive or something. Um, Austin, too, and we'll maybe I'm going to toss it to this question and I'll try and transition it with this thought. I always find it tough as a sell just because of the setting, uh, which can be, I don't know, I guess rigorous. It's like any historical fiction at this point. If you're not there's not some selling point to you right up front about the setting in terms of the country it takes place in or the time period, or if there's no intrigue to you about that, like if you don't care about, this would have been what, Victorian England then? It, it Victorian technically, society? technically it was yeah. Edwardian. Okay, there we go. And this is why I need you on. This is, these are my experts. I, basically, it's romantic or Victorian, and it's like anything else. Who cares? Okay, so Edwardian. It's it's an England that is gone, I guess is what I'm saying. It's a non-modern right. England, that's for certain. Uh, and so what would be your brief, I guess, sales pitch, if we want to phrase it that way, to someone who's off-put just by the setting? Let's say that they can read it, right? Like they can handle the, the language. They could even interpret the satire, which I want to come back to that, what you said about the humor. Because if, if you're not picking up on that, Austin will be a real drag. And that <laughs> probably just means you're misreading without being too cruel about it. Mm-hmm. Um because if you're not picking up on the humor and the, the sarcasm and irony, then it's like, man, this I could see why you hate Jane Austen then. Where it's just like, man, this is a drag. This is a really bland kind of um, portrait of rich people. But again, there's such subtlety to it. Anyway, what would be your brief pitch about kind of getting over that hump, the, the setting, the language, whatever? Well, I know that the the language in particular can be uh, difficult. I've I've worked with you know since yeah. we were both tutors, um, I've worked with students who were just like oh, I don't even understand what she's trying to say and right. stuff like that. It's it's I mean, but it's also if you think about it today, if you were to go over to England and if you had a conversation with somebody who was not trying to Americanize their speech for you, yeah. you would still have a difficult time with that um, just because of you know, we, we develop our language differently and there's a different accent, there's all this stuff. So it's, I think my advice for somebody who has difficulty with the language is <clears throat> you just got to practice with it. Just like if you yeah. wanted to speak, go over to England, it would take you a while to get used to that. It's the same thing as reading with uh, this particular language is, is you have to get used to it. And um, it's, difficult even like you know like I said my first exposure was when I was in sixth grade I was like what the hell am I even reading (laughs) right yeah that that age it's funny because I I used to when I taught middle school I used to get feedback from parents who probably like your mom then grew up on like a class very strict classics education and it's bizarre to me or it was when I was teaching how young some of that stuff could get introduced and I mean I think syntactically, like you could force that upon a sixth grader and like, yeah, their brain might be able to like work through the sentences, but man, like the literary elements, the irony, I mean, again, like they're advanced readers. I'm sure in sixth grade you derive things from it, but I I look at it now from a teacher's, former teacher's point of view and be like, that seems like madness to me. And I would have (laughs) some parents come to me though with that kind of feedback being like, aren't you going to include more classics? Like, why aren't you doing Charles Dickens? And I'm like, fuck, man, I don't think I'd ever teach Charles Dickens to any middle schooler ever. (laughs) Even if they were a genius, I would be like, let's just read something that will emotionally find you a bit more like developmentally. Like, Mm -hmm. are you really thinking about the great like wars and economic crimes of history in the sixth grade or what, you know, I don't know. I guess the topics uh, would seem to miss, but I definitely encountered parents like that. Yeah. Well, the way that, I was able to to kind of get through that and and fall in love with Jane Austen regardless of 
you know, half of the time not really understanding what was going on and the significance of, you know, her her mentions mm-hmm. of, of certain like military things and stuff like that. Yeah. <clears throat> is that um I found, like I said, her her characterization just really brought me in. So I was able to mm-hmm. kind of like gloss over the stuff that I didn't understand at that age or didn't find interesting and really just looked at um the the character interactions and that's what got me through it is i just yep. ignored it and then like focused on just the the actual story ignoring all the the setting and stuff like that and then in high school i went back to read and then i was like oh my gosh this is even better <laughs> now that i right? understand yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no certainly and the that level of yeah, I think there are certain writers um, who who get thrown around, and I mean most of them like properly canonized and remembered. But I think there are certain authors where you just look at the. I, I had a professor, I forgot how he phrased it. Basically, like he's like the sentence to sentence level is like undeniable. I think it was, you know, what it was in in college, and I still I'll stand on this limb. I don't I don't mind. People can come at me if they want, but I really liked John Updike in college. I got really oh. into his writing. And I still, I will still stand by a lot, most if not a lot of it. Yeah, he's bad at writing sex scenes, but also is he though? Like, <laughs> sex can be chaotic and weird. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. It's he was a bit of a misogynist in those scenes. There's no question. Mm-hmm. At any rate, and I remember talking to a professor about him, um, and he basically said like, "Oh yeah, he's undeniable talent on the sentence to sentence level, but I just don't like what he writes about." And that's essentially like I could see that for Austin for some people too, right? Where it's kind of like you know, can you really deny her? the the subtleties and and brilliant little twists and like rhetorical fit like you really can't it's she's just kind of has that genius or or master's level writing you know in her Mm -hmm. now granted again if you want to discount some of the um like messages she's imparting or i guess her sort of class status stuff again though i'm sure you being the person who's read most of her work that stuff is probably more subtle or complex than people think, right? Do you, do you just view her as like a rich lady who's criticizing rich people or is it, or is there more subtlety to it than that? She was not actually that rich. Uh, her father was oh, okay. a reverend. And so she, and she both, she and her sister ended up being spinsters, right? They never married. Oh, right. Okay. And um, her father did not have a whole lot of money. Um, And so she, I mean, she grew up fine. I mean, she, she was on the same level as like the, the characters that she wrote about um, uh, as far as like, they were comfortable. They didn't really struggle. They could do some charity work, but they were not by any means, I would say, uh, wealthy. Okay. Yeah, that's an important distinction too. And this is where and I try and forewarn people on on this podcast anyway. I'm the I'm my research level for this thing is pretty light, you know. So if there's like I I will try and find out certain societal things and try and place the literature, but yeah, I mean historically speaking, England at that time could have all kinds of uh I don't know, class divisions or subtleties that I have no idea about. You know, I just get the I get the broad strokes. But that makes sense, I think, in terms of I don't know, just how a woman would be expected to spend her time then, whether poor or rich. I think it's there's a lot of commonality there. Right. And her only form of entertainment, you know, back then they didn't have like TV and stuff would be letter letter writing. And women were not um, really supposed to be writers, which is why when she first started writing, she was anonymous. She just wrote that uh, the author would be a lady when she started publishing. Okay, uh, yeah, I saw that on uh, probably you know Wikipedia or something, but I did notice that, and that's um, that yeah, the pen name has a long 
and mixed up history in English. That's a, I mean, so for her case, you think it was just as a sort of a, I don't know, was it protective then just to protect her identity or was it more just out of a uh, forced humility or something? I think it was to protect her identity because yeah. um, they, her identity was not actually revealed until she died. Oh, okay. So yeah. all of them were published anonymously or under right. a pen name or something. Right, oh, right. Okay. And um, the, the person who would bring her works to the publisher and deal with the publisher um, was her brother, Henry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. Did you see, uh, did they, what kind of relics then, before we dig into the work, which I do want to do, but one more thing about her England then, since you were there, what, what kinds of things do they save to commemorate her there? Is it, do they keep like houses up? Is there, are there writing rooms? Do they try and keep a desk or something? Yeah. Uh, what kind of historical treatment is she getting? In London, in the, uh, oh, which uh, their, their big library, I don't remember what the, maybe mm-hmm. the, the British library or something. I don't remember the name of it, um, but they do have that her, right. they have her writing desk there. And cool. um, okay. she also lived in Bath for um, a lot of her life. Um, and she mm-hmm. actually uh, famously does, did not care for Bath, but the hmm. house that she lived in, in Bath, it has actually been turned into a museum. Um, and so, and I got to walk through that and everything. It was pretty cool. cool. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the artifacting uh, can be pretty impressive. Even my home, small hometown of Janesville, there's a building that Abraham Lincoln stayed in for like a week or something. He mm-hmm. And they've just like hermetically sealed that place. <laughs> it's like it <laughs> hasn't changed in however many hundreds of years or whatever. It's just like that place is, they've sealed it up. You can do tours, but it's like they've kept the bed, you know, supposedly. <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming it's all above board. I'm, sh- I'm sure it's accurate and everything. But yeah, they've... It can be kind of a funny thing to see. But for Jane Austen, someone who is apparently on their $10 uh, bill now, their $10 note, which is impressive, or £10 rather. Yeah. So yeah, she's she's really entered in the to like mythological status as a cultural sort of object. Yeah. Um, let's spin to her work at least a bit. I have only read Pride and Prejudice and about a chunk of Sense and Sensibility, probably half. Uh, I don't remember why, but I definitely have read some. And then, of course, these things that I covered on the pod, these teenage writings. Right. Um, what do you view as her most, if not complete work, maybe the most essential one in 2020? I guess to f- reframe it another way, like what would you recommend someone start with now? Uh, probably I would recommend um, as far as her novels would go, I would say mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice just because everybody knows that one. And that's sure. the one that like the most movies have been made about and even like spinoff movies, right? Bollywood did one, which was oh, called okay. Bride and Prejudice. Uh- <laughs> which, yeah, I mean, sure. That's a, as far as the swap word goes, that's, there's a lot of brides and such. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and there've been, um, my favorite uh, movie rendition of it actually is the one with Jennifer L and uh, Colin Firth. It's just the most true to the book. If, if you can't yeah. handle the book, at least that movie is, is pretty accurate uh, comparatively. Okay. So, or maybe start with the. I I don't see shame, especially in the more in a more dense work, doing the movie like first. I mean, the right. the literature being at, written as it was will have all kinds of of sort of 
daring things and good writing and what you know whatever like the movie will just get you a sense of oh this is the plot now i can go engage i like shakespeare i view pretty much the same it's like if you wanted to watch a video adaptation or movie adaptation of one of his works then go read him completely different you'll derive completely different things from those and one will only just help you comprehend oh yeah no shame in that for sure i mean with the especially if you find the language to be a barrier or if you're just like not understanding the scenes because you don't understand the setting definitely a movie is a lot very helpful in getting you interested into Mm -hmm. in in that stuff and so let's talk maybe like thematically anything from pride and prejudice again stand out for a modern reader any ideas any do you think she grapples with anything that has immediate relevance again i i have my thoughts but i'd rather hear yours first sure um so i think that all of her novels have relevance to today just because if you focus on on like i said the characters then it's about how people interact with each other and and how Mm -hmm. people misunderstand each other whether it's willfully or um just by accident and the way that people manipulate themselves and their situations in order to improve their own circumstances i mean it's it's what we do today it's what people do today so it's not it's not something that's new or that's ever gonna fade out it's it's that's what humanity is she writes about humanity yeah, and I think uh, to me, two things with Pride and Prejudice stand out. Though again, it's been been a few years. In terms of how I would read it now, I think when I if I were to read today, I'd look a lot more at the the sibling relationships and that sort of intra family jockeying for. I mean, in her novels, it's more literal like position. Like I have to secure safety. I have to be. I know isn't one of her sisters like obsessed with being married? And then there's the more independent one. That's the main character. Is that mm-hmm. about right? Kind of. Yeah. In in Pride and Prejudice, there are um, five sisters. Okay, yeah, I think those dynamics, again, while while blown out of proportion compared to like the average American family home today, right? Not many people have that many siblings now, so it's not very literal, but there is a an intra-family kind of just the way the pride and the trying to jockey, and I remember her father's an interesting figure, um, yeah. even, their, even their parents' dynamic and sort of how there's love there, but also each has an understanding kind of separate from one another. I just, yeah, like you said, it's just such like astutely observed family life. And I know there's other with marriage and and English society and yada, yada, there's certainly satire at other elements there, but that I think looking back on it is probably the stuff that is the richest in my memory. Yeah. The, the family dynamic, actually she's, she's very insightful. um, I think in that, because she also had an interesting family. I don't know um, how much you know about Jane Austen's like life itself, but you know she had an older brother Henry, and she had her older sister Cassandra, and mm-hmm. then she also had a brother. Um, I forget his name. I think George or something like that. But he was sent to live with other relations uh, because oh, okay. because at that time, like if you had, he had some kind of disability um but it's never really made i or at least i don't i don't know what exactly was it was his disability i think that it was um a mental disability but i'm not sure anyway he was off to live with other uh relatives which was not uncommon um during that time because you don't want you don't want to show off that relative um when you are trying to find suitors for your daughters right okay (laughs) shaming then exactly um but the idea of um 
especially in Pride and Prejudice, that the the family dynamic is really interesting because there is, uh, like you mentioned, the the sister who is obsessed with getting married, who is the youngest one, the most flirtatious one, and, right? Yeah, and yeah the, all the officers and such. I yeah, and yeah, so she's she's the one who gets in trouble. <laughs> then you have yeah. Yeah. then you have the oldest one who is the most beautiful and the most even tempered, um, and who. Um, is just the kindest one. And then you have Elizabeth, who's the second one. And she's the logical one. She's the one with the good sense of humor. She's the one with the independent mm-hmm. streak. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the middle sister who's Mary and she is obsessed with religion and books and proving herself to be uh, skilled um, in, in whatever way possible, because she is also the most plain. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then you yeah. have Kitty, who's the second youngest and who is, uh, perhaps just as empty-minded as her younger sister Lydia, but Lydia has a stronger personality and therefore kind of like leads Kitty about and is is the one who uh, causes the most trouble. And tough to be empty-minded in any historical epoch. To be fair, you never want to be in the in the family. You never want to be the one just slack jawed at the dinner table, like, <laughs> having little insight and wit about anything going on around you. Yeah, yeah, never, never easy that role. But mm-hmm. I, I respect it. And in a family of five, you're going to get a whole array. I mean, that's you've, <laughs> yeah. you've rolled so much dice in terms of you know. The, the child rearing that who knows what the family would turn out to be. I wonder then if this, cause and I'll admit I haven't seen it cause I'm a bad movie goer, like theater goer. I'm a hundred percent like red box and rent from home. Mm-hmm. But I wonder there are so many similarities now that I'm thinking between this and little women, which got another re-release this year, mm-hmm. which I'm sure is excellent. Cause I, Greta Gerwig, the director is like a brilliant filmmaker, whatever. Um, like, do you ever see lady bird? That was a great movie. Yeah. That's such a great yeah. movie. Well, she yeah, same director, and so same. I think she writes too. Anyway, so I've never read Little Women, but the way we're talking about family dynamic and these sort of uh, these universal experiences, they're, they'll always be a bit in vogue. I mean, it never truly family dynamic has not gone away in the last hundreds of years. So right. it, yeah. It, with one as well observed as this, I can see why it it holds up so well. Yeah, yeah. Little Women, I think, is. Uh, I haven't read that in years, but Little Women yeah. is also a lot. Uh, a lot more sincere, I think, in its portrayal of people. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, not nearly. And that's, yeah, again, I'd we've mentioned this at the top, but I, I would loop back to it again and just underscore for people who are unfamiliar with Austin, you just going in knowing that it's satirical, it's meant to be comical at points, it's meant to be humorous and like taking digs at people, that helps immensely. Because again, if you came away from it thinking that was just a really capital R romantic and sincere work, I mean, wouldn't you agree that they truly missed it then? I mean, oh, isn't yeah. that, yeah. My English teacher, I remember distinctly in high school, Miss Callison, shout outs to her. Um, she was so vehement about that. That was, you could not have finished that book with her and have not understood that. She, that's why she hated the Kira Knightley movie. I don't know if you know that film. Uh, yes. And I also really disliked that movie. <laughs> yeah. I, well, yeah. As, as you and her are both scholars of Austin, Austinites, as, as we say in the nomenclature. Uh, no, but as, I think it's that movie plays up some sincere r- romantic love that maybe the novel does not. Is that, is that why you didn't like it? <clears throat> yeah. It was just the Kira Knightley's actual portrayal of, uh, Elizabeth was a bit over the top. I would okay. say. And the um, Matthew McFadden 
I believe uh, it was the one who who played mm-hmm. Darcy, right? And normally, I love him. I think that he's a great actor. But his yeah. portrayal of Darcy was was a bit flat for me. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I could see that. I, I remember because um, we did watch it. I think she almost at the end of the novel made us watch it so she could see how expertly we could critique it. It was sort of like her brag moment to be like, I taught you this book so well, you'll know this movie's trash. And I complete disclosure. I did that with Percy Jackson in six with sixth graders. Yeah. Cause the movie adaptation of that film is so bad. And so I taught yeah. the book so aggressively to them that like, by the time we got to the movie, I wanted them to just tear it apart and be like, wow, what an awful adaptation. They really missed the mark on a lot of things here. Um, and so I, she did that with us too in that movie. Those, the one thing she kept saying as we would watch it or do scenes from it is that it's beautiful. It's like maybe the most accurate looking or like the way it captures the the countryside of England or the gardens or, you know, the dinner party atmospheres, all that. It was mm-hmm. like a very beautiful movie, but kind of crucially missed some tone pieces. Oh yeah, for sure. The, I think that the scenery was yeah, the setting gorgeous. Yeah. It, but yeah, the the characterization just it was wrong. It was just all wrong. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like that as we've been talking is like that's if you're going to get some Austin and do it well, that's the thing. <laughs> that's yeah. the thing that is makes her so universal and will hold her up uh in for a long time as a kind of canonized author. Mm-hmm. Um Let's talk then at least briefly before I want to end with like a mega question. So we'll save that for at least a little bit. Sure. But let's talk about these teenage writings. Had you ever uh, read them or ex- had exposure to them before that I covered? Uh, so I had read before her history of England, um, okay. which she had made for her, I believe I, I, specifically for her sister, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Um, yeah. But I had not actually read her other ones um i have a book actually while i was in england i bought um the oxford world's classics um jane austen like little pieces her juvenilia but i i never got around to reading it because i was trying to branch out (laughs) and yeah yeah. get out of just the classics so trying to read more like sci-fi and and Mm -hmm. fantasy novels things that i'd never read before so I think then uh, I'll give you my brief pitch and then maybe ask some questions, even though you haven't read them all or much of it. I think it actually is weirdly a, kind of a decent window in, kind of a good first exposure. I don't think, I think with any author of her kind of stature and status, I don't think starting with something that is like objectively not as developed is the best idea. It is kind of inherently for people who are already familiar, like, I, I yeah. If someone said I'd never read Jane Austen, what should I do? I, I don't think I would say start here, but it it weirdly has so many seeds in it of her future. I don't know style and kind of bold character decisions and the the humor of it, the the um, satire of it. It's all kind of here. There's characters. There's this one wealthy character that she writes in one of her letters that is just constantly doing these subtle undercutting class like digs at this other young character and she's mocking her appearance and she's doing, you know, the, the um, really cruel things like making her stand outside in the cold and then saying, my daughters would never do that. It's just very, it's petty social behavior and it's really well observed. Again, I don't think it's like maybe as well written or as subtle and as in her master works, but yeah, it's like, this is like a weirdly kind of perfect view of the thing she does well. Yeah. So the, 
what I did was I did read a couple of the ones that I knew that you were going to cover yeah. in your podcast. Yeah. So the uh, what's funny is when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this character reminds me of this character in this other novel. So you actually see sure. the, these are almost like rough drafts of what she would write later in life. And it's, it's, yeah. her, it's like a, I want to say it's, I don't want to say like mature versus immature, but it, it's almost yeah. like these are her, because it's her juvenilia, it's her immature um, rough drafts that then later become her more mature, more subtle um, writing. And I, I enjoyed it. The lady that you were talking about, the wealthy lady is yeah definitely, definitely based uh, her later in Pride and Prejudice, um, a lady, oh, what is her last name? Uh, is this the person that Elizabeth goes to stay with for a little while? I remember there's some kind of interlude in that novel. She stays with someone who maybe isn't family. Is this sounding familiar? Again, right. It's been years. Yeah. Is this that person where she's just, she's like very clearly wise and is sort of like because of her older status is just sort of above it all now. Does that sound like her yeah, deal? She doesn't actually stay with that lady. She goes to stay with her friend who married oh. her cousin who is okay. going, and the cousin is the very silly uh, reverend who is who loves to pontificate and just doesn't ever make sense and is very great like silly his benefactress who is also um darcy's aunt and oh so, okay yeah so darcy's aunt is the one who is is very much based on the the lady who was um making these circular logical <laughs> yeah. arguments um but yeah, yeah I, was, I was like oh my gosh that's her <laughs> yeah yeah there's it's uh, to me and all feel the free there Lady we go. Okay. <laughs> and don't, see, don't come for us, Austinites. We've got it covered. All right. We, we there's real expertise here on these mics. <laughs> leave, leave us be, please. <laughs> um, we're doing our best here. Um, no, but that's I, to me the best moment. And again, it was kind of a blunt force trauma satire twist. But it, I still still really worked for me. In one of these um, teenage writings, one of her uh, quote unquote novels, it's like 20 pages. There's a turn right in the middle. It's so far it's talking about these um, young women characters and how they're getting along and one of them's in love and it's the story's going ahead. And then all of a sudden there's a paragraph that says, and now we have to get to the hero of our story, which is immediately (laughs) like, "Uh, what? What are we talking about? And then it's her drunkard brother, alcoholic, who does nothing and then dies. And the only reason she makes that whole joke is like oh because he was rich and had a, and, he, and so she has to inherit what he owed or owned when he died and it is it's really funny it's you know it's a paragraph a great little turn in the middle it's you know i thought it was humorous and but again it's more like it's in your face i mean there's no yeah. you don't you don't have to unpack three levels of rhetoric to comprehend that really it's pretty much right there mm-hmm. i still thought it was fun though and it, it was humorous I, I liked it I think it's interesting, too, that in order for a man to be a hero, he's got to either die and leave money. Right. Yeah, or, well, yeah. or he's got to marry and give money. <laughs> hey, we, you know what? When you control all the institutions and all the wealth, uh, that is your that, that stands out as your most explicit form of power. Uh, so, yes, that I think that seems fair. And, you know, heroic he was. He ran to the bottle and did all he could. <laughs> Thanks. And we, we thank him for that. Um, yeah, that's great. Was there any other thing from these writings that stood out characters or otherwise? Mm. Well, what's interesting actually to me is, is her treatment of marriage, not, not just in her juvenilia, which I think that's, yeah. that's what brought this thought 
to mind. Um, mm-hmm. But also in her novels, it's like marriage is is the end all be all for everything, which is why her novels often end with a marriage. Um, yeah. Because for a woman, what during that time, what else is there that occupies your mind? Nothing. Mm-hmm. And then once you're married, what else occupies your mind? Your children, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Of course, she's going to write about, and and I, a lot of people give her flack about just like being obsessed with marriage. What else could she write about, really, as from a female perspective? Like, that's, yeah, I, that's I can't it. imagine she, she was going to crack the great seafaring adventure novel in eighteen hundred. <laughs> I don't. I, there were how many women were? I mean, and this is the thing about history, right? That kind of peeves me. And actually, this gets to my final big question that I hope we can tackle together. But yeah, uh, just to un or back up just a step, like it's always going to be historical context. And yes, there's always one exception out there. There always will be. And that's fine. That should be represented and understood. Like there probably was a, a lady sailor who like did a badass thing. Mm-hmm. There's like, it's it. There, humanity's too vast for that not to have been true. Right. But it, it's all about to me anyway, the predominant social conduct and expectations. And I think in that, if you just are that generous for her or to her, then yeah, her work makes immediate contextual sense. Right. And it's like, yeah, sure. Was there probably, uh, some again, like really brave feminist uh, of of her time that like renounced marriage and uh, unquestionably, but it's like that was that the predominant social expectation of her time? Right. Well, no. I mean, it was you know, be married, um, be demure, and find a husband that has property and wealth. Right. Yeah, and, and can so raise then, your family station in some way. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, social jockeying and, and sort of material jockeying too. Yeah. Final big question then, that let's un- try and unwind this in as brief a time as we can. Maybe we'll take another four or five hours to do it. <laughs> is, is she a feminist? And how do you place that then? Because this seems of all the light searching, and I read some online articles when I was trying to refresh on Jane Austen, it seems like still a contentious thing. And it still seems like the people who love her will always say yes. Um, I think universally. I don't know how many people love Jane Austen and say, I love it because of how conservative she is or was. That seems bizarre to me. Um, like she's conservative. Compa- if you took a 2020, let's say a person who is a feminist in 2020, man, woman, or wh- whomever, and like stand her next to them, we resurrected Jane Austen. Like, yeah, her views would be very conservative today, but the whole point is she didn't write today. I mean, right. I, that's where I come down on it. I don't know if you do. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point is, is that the definition of feminism itself has, has changed over time. The The feminists yeah. of the sixties and seventies are not the same feminists of today. And they're not the same feminists of the nineties right. and they're not the same feminists of the uh, suffrage movement or anything like it. it's, it's constantly changing. And to mm-hmm. hold your, hold Jane Austen up to the expectations of the modern, feminist is just unrealistic that's not a fair comparison Um, yeah we wouldn't hold i mean just think of any other comparative right we wouldn't hold their their men up or their political leaders up to ours like it's just it becomes bizarre when you do it in any other sense you know i like we're not going to hold their engineers up to our engineers like it's just (laughs) you can do you can do that and it sounds absurd but it to me it doesn't feel that different the comparisons right right yeah it's i've i've had discussions with people about whether she's a feminist. And I think that for her time, she was definitely uh, not just a feminist, but somebody who could look at uh, what was going on in society. And she made comments on it. She was very opinionated. If you, not too many people have actually read um, her novel, 
uh, Northanger Abbey, and if they have read it, they don't understand okay. it um, because yeah. it's not it's not the it is completely different from her other novels in that her most of her novels like Sense and Sensibility, Emma, Pride and Prejudice, they very much focus on the family dynamic and the dramas. They, it's called a family drama novel for a reason, right? I mean, it's okay. about those interactions. Northanger yeah. Abbey, however, is... Um, it's like a murder mystery novel. It's steeped in like this oh. gothic setting and stuff like that yeah. uh, because, and of course we we've talked about how she's, she's a satirical writer and, and yeah. people who read Northanger Abbey, I think just forget that that's what she's doing. But um, yeah, she's, she was writing in defense of the novel because at the time, the novel was seen as trash. Fiction was trash. Right, right. If you were reading fiction, it was something that you had to hide and like not discuss with other people. It just showed that you were very common, right? Only commoners would read fiction. Completely. Yeah, this is another element of how, gosh, time is such a funny bastard, isn't it? Like, we, <laughs> But it, we just perceive, I think, and this is partially... I don't know. I'm not going to like blame schooling in general. That seems to, that's like a weird generalization. But in school, if you came out of your schooling, you would think the novel was a timeless art form that's been taught forever just because that's what we teach students. Now we do a lot of short stories too, but like poetry's dead in school now. I mean, we, we do it like, you know, in the literal way, but like it's not the dominant type of writing you'll encounter. And so, yeah, you'd think the novel's been, you know, it's this eternal art form that will, that represents all of human history, but it's like not even, it's like 200 years maybe, and not even respected for that long. Right, right. Uh, And that's it. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. She championed it at a time when it was, I mean, it was epic poems or bust, or it was, I guess, romantic poetry or bust, you know, and, and plays, I guess, to a degree. Um, And so, yeah, that's, so this, what was it again? North Ranger Abbey? North Anger. Northanger Abbey. I yeah. think I saw a quote about that, that it was kind of a parody of a genre that it was more like postmodern in a way, in a weirdly predictive way, which sounds intriguing. That that interests me. It's it's very, very different from the rest of her writing. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. complete. I think that you would enjoy reading it, especially with the lens that it is meant to poke fun at people who dislike novels for the fact that they are fiction she it's very much a defense of the novel which is in itself you know revolutionary for that time right but also the fact that she as a woman is writing in defense of something that is unpopular and seen as common it's Mm -hmm. i mean i think that just shows that how you know how dare she opine right how did how dare she show her opinion and write it and publish it and you know, even though she was writing anonymously, she still wrote the 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 name. She signed it as a lady, so they knew that a woman yeah. was writing it. And right. and I think that it in itself shows that she was a feminist in a way. And that she, yeah, I mean, you can't make a decision like that and not be aware. And so her awareness, right. I think, as soon as you acknowledge, like, oh, she was aware that it was, you know, a, a foremost social issue or an important, like, well, then you have to look at her work with that lens. And that's where I think all the subtleties reveal themselves. Mm-hmm. Again, if you go into her work, not knowing the, the you know, the irony of, of certain things in the satire and yeah, there's just, there's just a way to so horribly encounter her work like i mean that's true with any satire frankly but i think just because her novels have other components that work well that if you're still missing that layer it's it can be you know you come away with her work i don't know i guess just in a troubling way in my mind like a really i don't know misread way yeah and 
I agree. If you if you go into it without thinking about uh, contextualizing what what she was going through and what her yeah. society was like, yeah, you, you've got to remember that she's very tongue in cheek. She's very subtle with mm-hmm. her humor. She didn't want to off put readers because she had a message that she wanted to share. Right. So you have to be subtle a lot of the yeah. time in the way that you write. You can't be heavy handed. Yeah. And is there a better illustration? I don't try and do a ton of current events things on the on the pod, but hey, I'm going to throw this one out so we can we can chat about this uh, brief light connection. But is there any better portrait of how like any social movement, like any theory, any literary theory, whatever there there's, you know, you shuffle along through history, but fem- feminism is no exception. I mean, there were feminists at the Super Bowl two days ago, which was, I think, two days ago like critiquing the halftime show, you know, it was too scandalous, whatever. And then, you know, the modern feminist is like, no, that's empowerment. And so, I mean, is there any better quick social illustration of like, yeah, feminism in 1800 is not what it was. It doesn't make it not that. And it doesn't make it not, I don't know, a step forward or progressive or however you want to phrase it. I thought I thought that um, the Super Bowl illustrated that a bit. I don't know if you saw any of that. <laughs> I haven't read any of the um, backlash about it. The only thing that I saw like pop up on my feed was like the Shakira tongue. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which apparently is some kind of Colombian. It's like a, a immigrants from Africa to Colombia. There's a cultural it's yeah, it has it has some layers of meaning um, that I didn't know until I read that. So I was happy to read it. And I think the blowback has been I'm not trying to exaggerate. I don't think it's like a profound there hasn't been some huge rupturing or something. But there were people online just saying like, you know, I'm all about uh, the, you know, advancing yada yada. But like how can it's the same. It's the classic like what we would call. I think this is still the term for it, but it's like slut shaming where it's yeah. like you, you can't both be. Um, sexually proud and like not not provocative, but like advancing that explicitly, and then also want your rights, which just seems. Can't we just move beyond that? I, I guess not. I mean, some people just will always believe you cannot dress that way and also get respect, uh, and that's kind of the. Cl- and again, I think people who believe that, I don't know, drop them fifty years ago, and it's like that's a feminist. That's a certain step forward, I suppose. Where it's like we can be taken seriously if you just wear a button-up suit or whatever. Yeah, so that was uh, definitely, I think, um, if you look at the 80s and the uh, when women started uh, really fighting for corporate jobs and stuff like that, they had mm-hmm. the, the shoulder pads, right? The power shoulder pads. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was in response to, well, you have to almost make yourself look like a man in order to succeed in a man's world, right? But now mm-hmm. we've got some of the the backlash to that, which is like, no, but I'm not a man. I'm a I'm a woman. Therefore, I should um, indulge in my femininity and to and to showcase because it's not anything I should be ashamed of. I am not a man. I'm not physically built right. like a man. Therefore, why not allow myself to just show off my femininity? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Like and, and what's interesting about it, too, is the fact that like we discuss so much what women wear, right? I mean, the the idea that they're so focused on their physicality. It's just, yeah, that's another interesting. Why would we? uh, And the other, I mean, there's so many layers here too. It's an active theater, man. It's supposed to fucking be exaggerative. What the hell? They're not going to Denny's on a fucking Sunday (laughs) wearing those goddamn outfits. Like, and even if they did, it wouldn't put me off much. Um, 
these things are always there's so much context around them but the the one that i can't believe always gets missed is the theatrical aspect yeah, it's a right. performance it's perform yeah, like okay her music has pretty explicitly sexual lyrics against something that doesn't bother me at all but okay if that bothers you well why if that bothers you then you shouldn't you know be watching in in any way i guess because it's like when you have music like that that deals with romance passion love and sex it's like well okay then they dress and d- do dances that are em- emblematic of their music that's what their music not entirely but that's what some of the songs are about it's about that kind of seduction so i don't I, the whole thing perplexes me and i, I don't want to blow it up again like it was a big backlash but you there's always those takes out there where it's just like you know i you know all power to women but like do you have to dress that way it's like man they're on a stage it's it's a fun like it's a performance i don't know like yeah i yeah. don't know and it's, and- a, it's a thing that confuses me still a bit yeah, it's it's a tough thing to to kind of crack as far and, and these same people are going to be people who um, knock like prostitution and they knock um, yeah. exotic dancing and stuff like that, right? Where women are, you know, I, I don't I don't know much about like what's going on in their lives, but I mean they've made mm-hmm. choices and they've you know and it's exotic dancing and stuff like that. I guess they oftentimes make that choice to do it. I'm I'm not. 100% sure but like what what gives you the right to knock what's putting bread on their table why right so it's it's the the conservatism that comes into a movement mm-hmm. that feminism right so you, you've got the conservative take oh well my religious upbringing is that you should be fully clothed and you should right. be this and this and you you should not uh, show off your body to men and stuff like that but yeah as a as a woman as I I don't even like to call myself really a, a feminist. I like to call myself um, an egalitarian, where mm. where I believe in in the equality of of the sexes and not and not the uh, superiority of of women over men. Because I feel like that's where the direction of feminism has has gone in a lot of ways. Um, uh, the... Yeah, in a, in a sense, I think of it like, and I want, we'll wrap back to Austin because we've gone off, which I love. <laughs> Not a problem. That's fine. Um, but I, yeah, I think of it like a pendulum swinging. This is an analogy I've said to friends before, um, but it's like, yeah, sometimes when you're trying to swing something in an opposite direction, you swing it back too hard, or it's like somebody on a, on a literal swing where you're like pushing them. Right. And yeah, you can push back, and then sometimes the swing goes too far back. I mean, it's up to, you know, culturally, societally, people to. I don't just observe where it's swinging and then evaluate as it goes, you know, check your morality, check and see what you believe and um, just stay thoughtful about these things. But no, I, I could see that interpretation. We've that deserves its own series of podcasts. I don't want to touch into too many, like, again, relevant social issues. But I think let me end with this bland connection to Austin, but it's bland, but I think profound and kind of simple, but true, which is th- that she has such interpretations in her work. Isn't that the ultimate show of her kind of mastery and legacy i mean would you ever want to put someone in in the classics category where she didn't have a complex legacy where there's the the, you know clear issues of feminism but maybe not maybe she's a conservative conservative person like i don't know that's to me the joy of it all It, it makes it fun and interesting to interpret and read Right. Yeah. I mean, the the whole way that you become canonized as a writer is that you are timeless. 
in one way right. or another. And, and definitely, I think she, I mean, we just went off and talked about feminism. Like <laughs> that wasn't even a concept during her time. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. So I think that it, yeah, definitely there's, there's evidence to, to show that she is a timeless author and that she is still relevant, um, especially mm-hmm. in her characterizations. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, there was a Sally Rooney quote. I don't know if you've read her novels. I, pr- I think I've mentioned at least one. Cause when I finished one last year, I, th- I may have recommended it, but anyway, she said that like, it's a torturously complex social code. And she says, who can think about men in the patriarchy without keeping a straight face, not me and not Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. And as long as you keep that in mind, if you do go and encounter her work or you're curious and you go read something, um, and you know, it's not that you have to bring along some kind of scholar's guide or you need an annotated copy though. Those, I always recommend stuff like that. But if you encounter her work, just keep that in mind that it's, it's all with a bit of a wry smile and that it, there's satire built in. And that I think just immediately elevates her work and makes it so much more enjoyable to read and encounter. Yeah. Any final words on, on Jane Austen? I'd love to give you the last word, anything you want people to understand, or I don't know, some kind of parting I don't know, uh, demand, not demand, but like recommendation or something. Um, I would just say that when, when you read Jane Austen and, and I definitely a hundred percent recommend Jane Austen to anybody who is interested in, in people watching and observing and just like getting, getting a good idea of like the absurdities of, of human nature, Mm -hmm. um, pay particular attention, uh, to how she, portrays especially women in the novel because you've got like the catty side and stuff like that and but all of it is is about the advancement in a world uh personal advancement in a world that does not treat women kindly um so it's it's an interesting way uh for her to treat like the perceptions of women as far as like, oh, women are overly emotional, like in Sense and Sensibility, you've got um, Marianne and Eleanor. Eleanor is the one who keeps a tight lid on her emotions until the end when she um, uh, gets the mayor. Don't want to spoil anything, but until the the end uh, when she gets something that she wants and then she just like loses it and cries. But it's like, she has to, um, overly emotional and overly showy women in in the novel are often uh punished in a way in the and uh women who are overly Mm -hmm. manipulative and overly like thinking too much about their stations they are often also punished in her novels it's the women who keep an even keel and the women who uh, are logical and thoughtful, but also still kind and caring. Those are the ones who are who are often rewarded for mm-hmm. being. Um, so you can see how how she treats women. But yeah, I just look at that eye on that. An, an author who embodies English temperament and, and sort of temperance, but then also is a bit of a feminist and has progressive subtlety. Again, what what better recommendation? This is good. This is, you know, that's why the literature gets the capital L is my I had a college professor who said that, who is probably an elitist now that I think back on them. But, uh, <laughs> they, they were big on that. You know, it's like they, that's the capital L. That's why it's that's why it's the stuff that will last throughout history. It's eternal. It's, you know, like you said, it's universal. So that's yeah. a perfect way to put it. Um, Amanda, hopefully we can get you back on the pod. I don't know, sooner than later, I'll have to give you the list of 
what we have coming up. I would um, love to. This has been so much yeah. fun and it's been my first time and I was so nervous, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great, right? And then we'll put it out into the ether or the void and I don't know, see what the internet does with it, whatever they will. My mom will listen. Hey, mom. Um, and, you know, that's it. We have one guaranteed listener. Maybe you can convince your mom to listen to. I don't know if she's much of a podcast fan, but that would that would surprise me a little bit. <laughs> it would surprise me too. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. We'll, we'll have to ease her in with something else, but that's uh, that's good. Um, anyway, until uh, until next time, we will see you between the classics. Thank you.